I'd like to talk a little more about the Lord Jesus tonight. I hope you're not bored about talking about him. Uh, it, it never gets boring uh, to think about the riches of what we have in Christ Jesus. And so we'll find out a little more. If you turn with me to John chapter 4, that's where we are, beginning in verse 43 tonight. John chapter 4, verse, verse 43. And uh, there it says, after the two days, he... That's, that's the Lord Jesus. He went forth from there into Galilee. Now, the there, as you recall, is a place called Samaria. And it was one of the regions in ancient Israel, Samaria. It's in the middle. Judea in the south, uh, Galilee in the north, Samaria in the middle. Uh, Samaritans lived in Samaria. The Jews did not like them, and the Samaritans did not like the Jews. They had no interaction whatsoever. In fact, the Jews, if they were going from the south in Judea to get to, to the north, uh, Galilee, they would absolutely take the long way around so as to bypass Samaria. <clears throat> but not the most famous Jew, Rabbi Jesus. He knew he wasn't going to be contaminated by the Samaritans for crying out loud. He wanted to pass on righteousness and knew he would not contract uh, any unrighteousness from them. And so he went there to pay particular attention to a Samaritan woman. She was an outcast. And there he found her alone at the well because she was a, a, a social outcast. She couldn't go when other women were drawing water. They had nothing to do with her. But the Lord Jesus crossed all social barriers. She was a non-Jew. Uh, she was a woman. She was a social outcast. He went specifically to win her heart. And, and he did. And she got so excited about what she found in Messiah Jesus, she couldn't contain herself. She left her water pot at the well, as you recall, and she ran into her uh, city, Shechem, it was called. It exists even today, only it's called Nablus today. That's the modern name. She went into Shechem to tell her people, come, come, uh, could this be the one? Could this be the Messiah? He told me things about me I did not uh, tell him about. He knows everything about me, and he accepts me. And many, many, uh, because of her testimony, followed the Lord Jesus and were saved. In fact, they were so thrilled to find salvation through Jesus that they beseeched him to remain in in this area at Shechem for two more days. And he said, yes. And it says many, many believed in him, no longer because of the woman's testimony only, but because of the Lord's word. And now after two days there, now we pick up the text. After the two days, he went forth from there, that is from Samaria, into Galilee. Well, why didn't he, uh, why didn't he go back to Judea? Why did he go north? Why didn't he go south? Well, it says in verse 44, for Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. Judea was his, pro his uh, province of residence. He was born there. Remember the uh, cleansing of the temple on Passover? That was in Jerusalem uh, where the temple was. That's in Judea. He was in Judea, but he was coming under enormous fire from the Jewish religious establishment, which was located in, uh, in Jerusalem, in Judea. And this was not his time. It wasn't his time to be taken and uh, falsely accused and imprisoned and impaled on a cross. It's going to come. He knows it. But the time was not uh, up to the Jewish religious leaders. It was up to his father, uh, the only begotten son, his fate and destiny was in the hands of the father, not any religious or political leadership. And so he avoided Judea at this time and went instead into Galilee. And so it says in verse 45, 
So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Now, the Galileans are very interesting, unsophisticated people, kind of blue-collar types, rural. In fact, they had a dialect, kind of like most of you do. And, and so you can tell a, Galilee, a Galilean right away, just like you can tell Texas, a Texan right away, you know, th that kind of thing. And in fact, when the Galileans, they were fishermen, most of them who followed the Lord, when they went into Judea, now that was a cosmopolitan, sophisticated place. That's where all the schools were and the government and so on. They can, they can spy out a Galilean in a second. They knew, oh, that, he's country. That guy is country, that kind of deal. Those are the ones the Lord recruited. Isn't that interesting? And so when the Galileans uh, received him, it says, they did this having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast. That's the feast of Passover. For they themselves also went to the feast. So he went into Galilee, and the Galileans there saw something about this Jesus that attracted them. They knew him to be the one who had the authority and audacity to cleanse the, the temple of money changers for crying out loud. Remember when he overturned the tables and did all that? Well, they saw him do this. And not only that, they saw, they tracked some of the other miracles he performed. Now, sadly, at this time, that's the only thing they're interested in. They're interested in his miraculous works. They have no real interest in his words at this point. They have to grow because this is not enough to save one. And so at this point, at at any rate, uh, the basis of attraction was that they, they saw him perform all these miraculous signs and wonders, and so they followed him. And it says in verse 46, therefore, he came again to Cana. So Cana is in Galilee. You know about Cana. He came again into Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. That's his first miracle. And there was a royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. You're familiar with this story, but it doesn't hurt to repeat it. Now, the royal official, he, he was a government official. He might even have been somebody on Herod's staff. He might have been one of the staff of King Herod. We don't know exactly, but we do know this. He had a son. He was a father. He had a son. And his son was sick at a place called Capernaum, or Kfar Nahum. It means the village of Nahum. That's where we got the name. Not Nahum the prophet, an unknown Nahum. It's right on the northern coast of the Sea of Galilee. Later, the Lord will establish his headquarters there at Capernaum. Many of you have been there. Anyway, the Lord is at Cana, uh, and this royal official had a son sick at Capernaum. Just to set up the scene right now, the two places are about 20 miles apart. Think about that. About 20 miles apart. So verse 47, when he, the royal official, we don't know his name, when he heard that uh, Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was imploring him to come down, that is to say, to Capernaum, to heal his son. For he, his son, was at the point of death. He was seriously ill. Now, the man was a royal official, uh, as I mentioned, perhaps on King Herod's staff. Uh, but it's very interesting. During this crisis, you notice, he didn't run to King Herod. He ran to King Jesus. I guess the dad was smart enough to know government has its limitations, doesn't it? Vote, support, do whatever you want to do. Pray for government leaders, but don't put... Uh, as much confidence in any government as you do in King Jesus. You're going to be sorely disappointed. Be very, very careful about it. So this man is smart enough to know King Herod can't deliver the goods. In this case, perhaps this King Jesus could. So he runs, 
He runs to him. Now this man, because he was a royal official, he had status, he had money, he probably had servants, yet none of these things exempted him from uh, one of the most jarring experiences of his life. His son was sick and at the point of death. Some of you here know what this is like by direct, tragic, and sad experience. Our hearts go out to you. There's nothing like being a parent and having a child deathly ill and even precede you in, in death. It's not supposed to be this way. Uh, but it happens. And so this man, in spite of all that he had, was not exempted from one of the greatest sorrows of life. Folks, nobody, regardless of one's position in life, is granted immunity from the sorrows of life. I don't have all this figured out, but I know it's a fact. Nobody, regardless of one's status in life, is immune from the sorrows of life. Doesn't matter who you are, doesn't matter what your status is, Sooner or later, you're probably going to run into great sorrow. The question is, how are you going to deal with it? What are you going to do? What are going to be your resources? What resources are you going to call upon? To whom will you go for help? Well, this man's sorrow drove him to the Lord Jesus. I think the biggest tragedy is not to experience a tragedy. The biggest strategy, uh, tragedy is to experience a tragedy alone with no concept of outside help. At least this man had some hope, very, very infantile faith, if any, at this point. But he had some, some expectation that maybe this special Jesus, maybe, 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 he's the outside help he needed. And so his sorrow drove him to the Lord Jesus. And so he made this journey, 20 to 25 miles uh, on foot from Capernaum to Cana in the hope that this special, unusual healer could perhaps save his son from death. Folks, affliction, which I hate, and so do you, is nonetheless a great motivator. Affliction. I think adversity produces more fruit in us than prosperity, though I would prefer prosperity. So would you. And yet adversity seems to shape us up and motivate us in better directions than prosperity. That's the case with this man. Affliction was his motivation. Concern for his son drove him to Jesus, such that if his son was not deathly ill, he may never have run to Jesus. Do you have a testimony like that? I suppose it doesn't have to be that way, but it often is. If I wasn't in 1973 at the point of a death, a suicidal death because of issues, I, I never would have cried out to Jesus. I, I can't imagine it. I just, I just, it was the adversity and pain uh, of life that drove me to this particular Jesus. Maybe he could heal me. Maybe he could deliver me. That, has that happened to you? Something like that? That seems to be a common experience. You don't have to wait for adversity to run to the throne of grace. You don't have to. Uh, but that, that seems oftentimes to be necessary for most of us to motivate us to him. There was a man of old, wonderful commentator, theologian, and pastor named J.C. Ryle who made this statement. He said, prosperity and worldly comfort are what all naturally desire, but losses and crosses are far better for us if they lead us to Christ. So Jesus, in verse 48, said to him, 
the dad, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will simply not believe. You see, but he wasn't particularly addressing this dad, this royal official. He was making a general statement. He was uh, uh, aware of the sad spiritual state of affairs of people in general and in the context of Jewish people in particular. You people, you have to see stuff in order to believe. They were marked by the epithet, seeing is believing. But that's not good enough. The Lord Jesus was and is looking for people for whom hearing is believing. Just confidence in his word is enough, should be enough to usher a sinking person into the fold, into salvation. And that's who the Lord Jesus was looking for. But the people surrounding him now, for them, the motto was seeing is believing. He's looking for people who will take him at his word. Why? Because a faith built merely on the miraculous is not uh, going to end up being a mature faith at all. Some seem to need their faith constantly buoyed up by signs and wonders. But I think the Lord Jesus wants our faith to be fed by what he has said and by what he has promised. I'd like for us to pause just for a second and feast on some of his promises as expressed in this very gospel, this story told us by John himself Here's one of the promises of Jesus, which he expects us to accept by faith. John 6, verse 40, listen. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. I know for most of us, seeing is believing, but what about hearing? Why can't that be the basis of our belief? How about John 10, verse 9? Another promise of this Jesus. I am the door, he said. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What about John 10, verses 27 and 28? My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Do you need a sign or a miracle or uh, the miraculous to buoy up your faith in the very words of Jesus? Why can't we just take him at his word? How about this? Oh, this is a powerful passage. My mother memorized this and read it over my father's bedside in the hospital when he had just passed away, passed away to go into glory. And my mother, this was years ago, she, I don't know how she was going to take it. In fact, the doctor was wondering. He stood by. He thought she'd collapse. Collapse nothing. My mother believed in the, in the Lord Jesus and knew exactly where my father was, who had, who had taken Jesus at his word. And so my mother shared this passage over my father's uh, bedside about two seconds after he passed away. John 14, verses 1 to 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. It was a Jewish physician in there. He got an earful, I'll tell you that. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Powerful words of Almighty God. Uh, you know, it's through his word that he created 
the very cosmos, creation. Remember what he said? Let there be light. Boom. You see how powerful his word? And in his word, he can create new life in us. If you're saved, it's because you took Jesus at his word. But people who are constantly demanding from him signs and wonders and the supernatural, well, you may get some of that, but then they need that in order to buoy up their faith. I think it's better to just sit at the feet of the Lord Jesus and pour over his word, hear his still small voice, take him at his word. Oh my goodness, that's a very powerful thing to do. Well, the Lord Jesus rebuked the people there in the area for needing signs and wonders and for not taking him at his word. But I must tell you, I think the concerned father at this point was really not ready for a theology class. He was absolutely consumed, as you can imagine, with concern about his son. And so it says in verse 29, the royal official said to him, to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's as if he's saying, I appreciate what you have to say. I'm interested perhaps in Bible class, but right now my son's going to die. You got to hurry up. He's 20 miles away. You're over here talking to us. You seem to be in no rush whatsoever. I don't understand why you're not more concerned. I'm in a panic and you're teaching us about stuff, you know, theology stuff. Please come down before my child dies. That's what he says. Well, that's the father's heart for his son, isn't it? You can understand that. And while this father's heart is filled with concern over his son, he's, I think, not yet aware of the fact that the heavenly father has a heart for his own son right in his midst. And the heavenly father has such a heart for his own only begotten son that he was willing to send him to suffer and die for this very father whose heart is breaking over his son. Well, the concerned father knew something, obviously, about this Jesus, but he didn't know enough just yet. For instance, he implored him to come down, that is to say, from Cana to Capernaum before my child dies. But if he really knew Jesus, he would know two things about him. Number one, Jesus can heal from afar, right? Even distance is no impediment to him. Secondly, uh, if he knew Jesus, he would know that Jesus can raise people from the dead. So he doesn't get it right now, and that's why he's a little lathered up. He didn't didn't understand all he will come to understand about Jesus. And so verse 50, Jesus said to him, go, your son lives. Well, uh, the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and started off. You see, that's the person Jesus is looking for. He didn't see his healed son. He heard the pronouncement of Jesus. Go, your son lives. And the text says on that basis, based on confidence in the word of God, the man believed and he started off. That's what he did. You know, a double miracle is in view here in this story. Do you notice it? Of course, there's the miracle on the body of the son, but there's also the miracle on the heart of the father. And I think that's more important even than the physical healing, the spiritual healing. That's very, very important. So that's what's going on. So verse 51, as he was now going down, he, he, you know, he's going from Cana to Capernaum. Again, it's a 20-mile journey. As he's making that trek, his slaves, the man's slaves, met him saying that his son was living. Can you imagine that? They couldn't wait for their 
their uh, royal official master to get home. They charged out. I don't know where they met him in the room, but they're just excited to tell him everything's well. Your son, your son is alive. And so he, the father, inquired of them. This is very interesting. The hour when he began to get better. <clears throat> Isn't that unusual? Why would he want to know that? The hour at which he began to get better. And they said, well, it was yesterday at the seventh hour. That's when the fever left him. I think he wanted to know the hour. I'll tell you why. Because he knew that's exactly the time when the Lord Jesus made this pronouncement of healing from afar on his son. And I think he wanted to associate the two because he was a grateful man. And he wanted to associate the gift with the giver. Sometimes we're remiss in that regard. And, and he saw a direct connection between the blessing and the blessor. He saw this coming from this Jesus. He was exactly at the same time when Jesus said, your son is well, boom. The manservants tell him that's when the fever left him right then and there. You know, sometimes when I pray for me and for you, I pray, oh God, would you please deliver the goods for that person? But in such fashion that it would be very clear that you're the one who delivered the goods. Don't just bless that person with something. Do it in such fashion that that person has no choice but to see the connection between the gift and the giver. Because I would like this to be an incentive to that person's faith. And that person has physical needs and financial needs and marital needs and all the rest. I got all that. But that person, like me, mostly has soul needs, has spiritual needs. And so, God, it's not just meeting their immediate, worldly, temporal, physical, financial need. It's that they could see you're the one who met the need. Me too. And that way our faith will be bolstered up. We'll give you the glory. We'll thank you. And we'll know you'll never leave us or for forsake us. And so that's what happened with this man. He was a grateful man. Can you see his expression when they said, oh, it was at such and such hour? You could see him going, wow, wow. So verse 53, so the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. But I think without the illness of the son, the man would, would perhaps not have sought Jesus. And without seeking and seeing who Jesus was, perhaps this man's whole household would not have believed and be, been saved. Can you see how God can use all these things for eternal good? I don't get this all the time and neither do you. There are some people in our midst are some of the most devoted followers of the Lord Jesus I know, and yet they're going through very, very difficult times of severe affliction. I'm a human like you. I say why. I say how long. Those are the two questions we put to God all the time. But then I get a glimpse of what God is up to by reading the Bible, and I find out nothing comes our way randomly. It's not the cruel winds of fate. It's a sovereign God whose eye is on eternity. And he's orchestrating events to enhance our interest in him. For he desires for none to perish, but for all to be saved. In my hardened heart, I needed it to be softened up by pain and affliction. What about you? Just a casual presentation of the gospel. Just an invitation to come to church. That wouldn't have worked for me. I had to really come to the end of myself. What, what about you? And I remember my first prayer to Almighty God was a prayer of anger and contempt. Isn't that something? It's a wonder I wasn't struck down by lightning. I remember saying, God, if that's your name, 
You were responsible for me. Well, that's the truth in that, isn't it? But I didn't say it in a complimentary way. Why didn't God just say, do you know who you're talking to? Go from me. But he didn't do that. He was reading a broken heart, even though my words were out of line. He was reading a broken heart. And it was the pain of life that softened up this hardened heart. So I cried out uh, to the Lord Jesus. Folks, all kinds of things happen in this sin-sick world. And we wonder, don't you wonder sometimes, oh, God, where are you? Don't you? Well, but, but he gives us the same answer he, he gave in Habakkuk and repeated in Romans. Listen to what he said. I'm doing a work in your day. You could not comprehend it if I told you about it. That's what he said. And then he said, but the righteous, those who would be right with me, will live by faith. In other words, trust me, though you can't explain all the circumstances that befall you, though you don't see my redemptive purpose in it, live by faith. Live by faith. If I gave you the best I had to offer, won't I also, also freely with him give you all things? Trust me. Take me at my, at my word. Don't be one of these for whom seeing is believing. What about hearing is believing? What about that? Read my word. See how I'm dealing with this situation. A sick man's son in Capernaum led to the dad's salvation, led to the son's salvation, led to the salvation of everybody in this royal official's household. God knows what he's doing. Now says this, verse 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. So his first sign was at Cana. You know about it. It was at a wedding. It was the transformation of water into wine. And the second sign is the healing of this man's son from Cana, though the son was in Capernaum. So those are the two signs spoken of here. First one, transformation of water to wine. Second, healing of the uh, royal official's son. But I, I need you to know this. This is important. These are not arbitrary things. The Lord is not into theatrics. He's not a showman. He's not at anyone's beck and call. Uh, you know, dance for us, Jesus. No, 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 no. He doesn't do that. He, he doesn't do, He's the king. We're subjects of the king. He's not subject to us. So, so you need to know any miracle in the Bible is purposeful. Now, here the word sign is used. Why? Because a sign is something that points to a greater reality. In this sense, the two signs are meant to point people to Jesus. These miracles do this, these two. They demonstrate the Lord's power over time and over space. The two dimensions that lock us in. Folks, this is Wednesday. We can't get yesterday back. That was Tuesday, and we can't enter into a Thursday yet. We can only worry about it, which is a bad deal, but we're stuck in time, and we're also stuck in space. Look at this. Boom. This thing stopped me right here. You see, we're just stuck into space. You can't pass through the walls, nothing like that. You're going to have to walk down the aisle, go through the door. We are stuck. We're limited as creaturely beings. These are the two dimensions that limit us most, most time and space, but our Messiah is limited by neither. And the two signs 
demonstrate his supremacy over those things that keep us bound in. For instance, the first miracle, the turning of water into wine, revealed the Lord's power over time. How do I mean that? Instant fermentation took place. Now, I'm not the expert on wine. Don't try to pin that on me. But I know it takes time to, to produce it. Fermentation is the process. When the Lord made his pronouncements in Cana and said, water, you be wine, boom, it was like that. And he, he, didn't, need the, he didn't need time to make that happen. He that's the point of the first miracle. He wanted people to see, I have mastery over time. Now, the second miracle, the healing of the rich government official's son revealed the Lord's power over space. Good night, he was 20 miles away from the place of the boy's healing, and yet he pronounced it from that distance. Space, now the dad initially thought, oh my goodness, this space thing is a big problem. You're 20 miles away, good night. By the time we get on a horse or donkey, whatever they rode in those days, or run, who knows what. By the time we get there, he'll be dead because space limits. Yeah, everyone except the Lord Jesus. Can you see the two miracles? It shows his mastery over time and over space. And why does he do that? To show us how he can grant us mastery over sin. That's why. Good night. If this Lord Jesus has control over the physical universe, things which box me in and limit me, but I think he has the authority to say, you're sins are forgiven. But I think he has the authority to say, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. I think he has the authority to say, I'm going to send my helper into you, my spirit, and my spirit will indwell you and change you from the inside out. I think he has the authority to say, uh, if I don't return before you die, do not worry about it, because when you die, you will be with me for I am the resurrection and the life. I think he has the authority to say, well, back it up, Jesus, back it up. Well, he does. He showed us mastery over space and time. You don't have mastery over those things. Neither do I. That's what he was doing. Folks, here's the point. Neither space nor time is an obstacle to the Lord's power, and neither space nor time is an obstacle to his love for you. It could reach you at any time and in any circumstance. And so for those of you here who believe in him, he says in so many words, I am with you always and in every situation. What's your situation? He's with you. <clears throat> and then he says, I am with you at all times and in all places in your life. What time is it for you? What's the season of your life? What's going on? What's your place in life? What's the space? What's, what's the situation? What is it? I don't have explanations for why you go through what you go through, why I go through what I go through. But I know he's with us in the hurt. But how do I know that? Because he overcomes space and time. The two miracles at Cana show me that's all I need to know. <clears throat> do you have a savior like that? Sorrow if it hasn't yet, will, based on probabilities, come your way. Nobody's immune to it, not rich people, 
Not poor people, not black people, not white people, not female people or male people, not Jewish people, not Gentile people. I know we divide up along those lines, but uh, adversity has a way of including us all. That's the common denominator. We humans in this space-time donation, a space and time uh, situation, they're going to run into sorrow and loss and hurt and all the rest. This man ran to Jesus. Are you going to run to the government? <laughs> Where are you going to run to? Who are you going to run to? Who can do for you? Who's overcome space and time? Who could do that? Who did that to demonstrate his love and concern? What God is there who would sin? This man would not, the man, the royal official wouldn't sacrifice his son for ones like you and me, but the heavenly father did. Pardon the vernacular, but where are you going to get a deal like that? Who loves you that much? I don't. God does. Why? Well, he kind of has an investment in those he made. And he wants a return on his investment. But the rich uh, official here, somehow something in him knew I need to run to Jesus. That was going to be his outside help. He needed help beyond himself, beyond resources. And so he ran to the Redeemer. Do you know Jesus is your Redeemer? You can run to him. You've done so uh, for the forgiveness of sin. But he's come to save us not just from the penalty of sin. He's come to help us through the sorrows of life. He's come to deliver us. I got this from sin. I know that. But he's come also to deliver us from the throes of life. Who do you have? Who's your outside source of help? I remember when I accepted the Lord Jesus, one of my family members said, said this Jesus is a crutch for you. To watch this. I said, you're darn tootin'. Yeah, he is. And then I said, who's your crutch? At the time, I was speaking to a relative who had a, a shot of uh, scotch in his hand. See that? He couldn't even have a civil conversation without getting lubricated. And he's criticizing my Jesus. Yeah, he's a crutch. A living savior is a good one to lean on. Booze is not. That's a false god. That's a false god. Sooner or later, if you haven't already, one of the circumstances you run into in this space-time uh, uh, situation is going to overwhelm you. You've got to run to somebody. If you've accepted Jesus, you've taken him at his word. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. If you've accepted him as personal savior, you can run to him. And if you have not yet doing it, could you please help me? Why not? Why not? What's your reason? Do you have a better reason to leave Jesus outside of your life than to invite him in? I don't, I don't. Nah, I, I know he has to play the key role in this. I know he has to stir you up. I know he has to do a work in your life before you invite him in. I know that. Maybe he is tonight. Are you disturbed? Do you feel like an outsider looking in? Are you in the midst of something too big for you to handle? Do you know you don't have right standing with God? If you begin to feel those things, be uncomfortable by those things, that's the evidence of God in your life. And I beseech you, if that's the case, before you leave tonight, spend time with one of our good folks. There's a room right behind us called the Connection Center. You don't even have to go there knowing exactly what's going on. They're good people. They'll draw you out. They'll pray with you. They'll pray with you. And it's the Connection Center because it's possible you could leave here tonight 
feeling disconnected from God, and now you can have that resolved, and you could find a way. In that connection center, they'll help you to know how to connect with this same Jesus we just read about, because I think he wishes to do for you just what he did for this royal official. I happen to know that, because he has no favorites. <laughs> I happen to know that. And he desires for you to have the same experience with him this man did. I hope you take advantage of the opportunity we provide for you before you leave tonight. In fact, I'll pray that. Lord Jesus, just as you knew about what was on the heart of the Samaritan woman and on this royal official from Capernaum and all that stuff, so do you know what's going on in our hearts here tonight. Some of us have broken hearts. Some of us have hard hearts. Oh God, I pray you would heal the hearts that are broken and you would soften the hearts that are hardened and that you would do your marvelous work in people's lives here tonight. And I pray for the one or two or more, I don't know, who came in feeling apart from you, that they would not leave feeling the same way, but that you would affect a connection between them and you by your work in their lives such that they hear and believe and are saved, just like this royal official in the text. Thank you for your kind intentions toward us. You're very patient with us. You could uh, dismiss us for eternity. Instead, you give us this grand invitation, come to me. And I love the prerequisite, all who are weary and heavy laden. Who here isn't? Oh, God, thank you for the grand invitation. I pray we would take advantage of it. We would heed it and be reconciled to you now and forevermore. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.